Listener Production. Kick Bump acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Yolukut Wollum clan of the Boon who are part of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Kick Bump Podcast, your fortnightly DM on all things motherhood. One, two, three, four. Welcome back to the potty, guys. And across from me today, I've got Lawsy here. I feel like I've snuck into, at school, mm. I've snuck into the teacher's Please tell me you didn't do that in room. high school. That's so What's lame. it called where they have lunch? Their lunchroom. The yeah. teacher's lunchroom. Yeah. No, no, no. I, but sometimes I delivered things in there and I would look, look around. You delivered things into the lunchroom? Yeah. If they, if God, I, you were a teacher's Yeah, I was, you? I was. Oh, anyway, God. I feel like I have snuck into the teacher's lunchroom mm. and I'm somewhere I'm not meant to be. You're meant to be here today. It's a very special episode. Because it's all, actually all about you today. Steph just gets to have all this fun on kick bump and because I don't have any kids, I can't come on it. Yes, you can. I That's also, the whole point you of today's so episode. Mandy was, like, Mandy was like, do we have a toddler tantrum? And I was like, I don't want to listen to She doesn't want to hear it. I was like, do we, no. do we need it? For this no. no, that's mean. I do enjoy We don't hearing. do them for every episode. Um, yes. Especially the episodes when I have a big enough Harvey update, yes. which I think I do. Okay. Also, sorry, I do like toddler tantrums. Stories. No one likes toddler tantrums. No stories. But they're hilarious yeah, they because they're just often ridiculous. Speaking of... He has been a bit grouchy lately and he hasn't been his normal self and he has also not been sleeping amazing, like taking a lot longer to fall asleep and also he's always been such an independent sleeper and lately he's been like needing us in the room and stuff. And when you are completely out of patience, it takes like all the strength in the world to not just crack it and just like explode because you're at boiling point. You really, it's like it practice, you have to practice patience like crazy as a parent and he really tests us and I, it's funny because we were talking about it and like we were both like talking about how angry it is or like how how we want to explode and we're like we're adults and sometimes we still do explode. Like as adults, I, I might get home and I'm stressed and I'll just yell at Josh because he, I don't know, didn't do something that I wanted him yes. to. And it's so, it's blown out way out of proportion, but I'm just angry about something else, so I'm really angry. It's funny because then when a child is throwing a tantrum over something that you think is ridiculous... In their world, it's really upset them or there might have been even something else that was disconnected that's upset them and that you're, you can't read their mind. And we think like, oh, what weirdos. Like he's just, he's doing this on purpose to piss us off. Sometimes as humans, even as adults, we can't control our emotions. So you can't really expect a toddler to. And then we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. have a lot of, of patience. That. I feel like I'm going to need lessons. But you do, you just, I didn't. You just, it just happens. You realise you don't have another option. Mm. You like can't not have patience. True. You actually can't. You don't have a But no, something exciting that we have implemented to try and help his, with his sleep at the moment um, is he's got a pillow now. Very exciting. He's got a pillow. If I had a baby, would You're... that be exciting to me? Because <laughs> he's got step. a pillow. It's a big step. So he hasn't have... Oh, yeah, because it's true. Actually, I always think that they just sleep flat on the cot. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's got his own pillow now. So did you go to the shop and buy it with him? And how did you explain to him what it was? Yeah, so the reason, well, he sees us on our pillows and we lie on our pillows. And if he comes onto our bed, he'll see the pillow. And he even often, like, we've used his teddy bears sometimes as pillows and we laugh and joke about the fact that he's, like, completely squished (laughs) one of his teddies down. So he understands what a pillow is. So Josh took him to the shops today and got him all, like, ramped up about getting a pillow and got really excited about it. And they went and they bought it and he showed me on FaceTime. Does he need a small one? Yeah, like a little kid's pillow. I was going to say, those would be the same size as the cot. No, 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 very little. Um, And then he put his Toy Story cover on it and was like really excited to use it. And um, when he went down, he didn't go down seamlessly, I will say, but it was shorter than he has been lately. And it was just so cute watching him cuddle up to his pillow and put his head on a pillow like a big, uh, like a big boy. It's really hard to explain, but when Mm. you see your child sleeping for two years of his life, on a flat surface. I feel so bad. And now he has a pillow. So it's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Mandy, you're better at talking. <laughs> but Mandy, I miss you in the intro. Mandy's not even listening because she's so bored about the pillow. No, I'm joking. I'm, I'm joking. so sorry. I it was, miss you. Laura's giving me fuck all. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Barbie has a pillow. I'm trying to talk about something I'm super excited about, and she's like, "Mm -hmm, "Yeah." (laughs) I feel bad. It's because we're doing an afternoon recording, and I. It's not. I generally don't give a fuck. Can I tell you? Laura's like, "Get to me. Get to my episode about me." Can I tell you something? No. Can I tell you something? You did show me in the elevator the video of him with his pillow, and I was like, "Oh my god, so cute!" Can we listen with the volume? So I did. I do appreciate it, but I have not. Had to speak about it for five minutes before. Now, I. (laughs) The reason I brought up that story was not because it was an exciting, like, sure, it's exciting for me and Josh. It's adorable, but it's not, that's not why I brought it up. I brought it up because apparently, if you have a child around the age of two or just over and you're going through something similarly, oh my God, I want to kick her out. Mandy, I want to kick her out. She's not even letting me do my job. She's like, this is a joke. Um, Okay. Okay. Reason Sorry. I brought this story up is because I was thinking something was going very wrong with Harvey. But if you have a, a two-year-old or around that age, and they're suddenly there's a change in their sleeping patterns or they're refusing going to sleep, it's all completely normal. Um, there's plenty of people you can talk to. But there was a lot shared in our Kickbump Facebook group um, of people changing up the routine and slowly weaning through it, and just know that it's a phase and you'll get through it, and they will get through it because. Josh and I honestly felt like we, we were right back there to the early stages when we were like fully going through the thick of it, not sleeping at all and was in full sleep deprivation and we were so scared that we were going back to that direction, which we're not, and it's all fine. So you're not alone. And maybe try a pillow. But, but uh, it's a great or suggestion. Or something, just something to mix up their routine and make it more exciting. So that is great advice. Buy Thank a baby you. pillow. Anyway, today you are here, Lawsy, because we are talking to Dr. Snail Wadwani about all things fertility because you have just gone through a fertility test of your own. I have. And I thought it was getting the results read out to me was so interesting and Mm. there was so much that I just didn't know. I also had no idea that you even could get your fertility tested before, like through a blood test Mm. before. And I thought, as I was kind of going through with the doctor, I thought this is so interesting and we should talk about it. And then I originally said we should talk about it on Kickpod and then all of a sudden I'm on Kickbump 
So we thought it was more appropriate for Kick Bump podcast. Yes. So we got Dr. Snayer on. She is the clinical director and head of GP for wellbeing and women's health at a clinic in Bondi in Sydney and is also a lecturer of the University of New South Wales of Medicine. She specializes in women's health and she's also a mum of two of herself. And I've got to say, she has got a beautiful, soothing voice. She does. I got lost a few times because I, I, there's an, I have an obsession with English people. You do. Anyway, please enjoy today's potty. Dr. Snea, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Also, oh my goodness, why I am say, I starting? Welcome this is to not you my too, podcast. Laws. This is Steph's episode. You're welcome. I've been kick, I have never been in the kick bump room before. And here you are. But yes, thank you, Dr. <laughs> Snea, for joining us. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Everyone's listening and is like, why is Laura here? This is the break from Laura. No, this is great. I'm very excited for for this episode and I feel like I'm particularly excited as your best friend because I think this is going to be a little bit of a session for yourself as in like you're particularly excited because there's things that you genuinely really want to know for yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're good They're good questions. Yeah. And I feel like too, so what, what we're talking about, and with this also, why I'm on kick bump, because it's quite, it is quite random, um, <laughs> is because Steph and I have been talking about, and, and recently I got my fertility tested. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, it's interesting, I, I ordered the test, I reckon it was 18 months ago. And then I just didn't get my blood test for a long time. And then I thought, I just, I think you'd asked me a few times and I was like, I just need to do it. It was funny. I wasn't like worried per se. I feel like maybe by avoiding it, it meant that then I didn't have to deal with it if something was wrong. Um, But I did get it. And then I got my results back and I just thought it was so interesting because truly I, I didn't know that you could get a blood test for your fertility. I feel like, I mean, it was something that we were just talking about off mic before was that kind of information and education on women's health is quite, well, for me, it was quite limited. And I mean, it's like what we do every day, but I, I just didn't didn't know anything mm-hmm. about that. So for me, just, to, just for everyone's context, so I, I did this test um, on my fertility and it was a blood test and I got my AHM tested. Your, your no. AMH. Mate. Oh my God. And I also got some other hormones tested. Um, but the main one was, was that one. And what I then went through with the doctor was how many eggs I have, not the specific number, but it was kind of a graph with like a range. Yeah. Went from green to red. Um, and then based on where I'm at now, where it is more likely that my eggs supply will start to kind of go into the orange and then the red. And then also based on and looking at, I did had, I was very, very um, grateful to hear that I did have quite a lot of eggs. Oh, then we spoke through some of my hormones. And I was also, I spoke about, you know, because I've thought about egg freezing and if I'd had to do that. And it was really good. The doctor spoke to me about because of where my egg reserve is at. It's not something that I would need to do for a few years if I did decide to do it. But then the thing that I think on top of that is then the quality of the eggs is obviously a different thing that you can't test in this in this blood test. So that was kind of that's kind of where I'm at. And I am very, very grateful because I know for, for a lot of people, you know, that we don't all have the same egg different news supplies. Yeah. Exactly right. But Dr. Snay, if someone goes to check their fertility at, at their GP, what is the blood test that they usually do? And then what does it actually test for? Okay, so 
really it depends on the circumstances of, of the patient presenting, the lady presenting. So if, for example, they're on the contraceptive pill, you can't do an AMH. If they're using the implant, you can't do an AMH. Mm. So these, these contraceptives where there's an amount of what we call systemic hormone, so hormone that's circulating in the bloodstream, that particularly affects the function of the ovaries in terms of ovulation is going to affect the AMH, right? So you have to do the test in the right circumstances. So for those people, really, they'd need to be off contraception for about four months or more before you're going to get a reasonably accurate reading. Now, the test itself, and this sort of explains why um, you can't do it when you're on hormones, it's basically measuring the levels of a hormone that is released from cells that um, are used in the production of follicles. And we know that follicles develop and become, you know, we release eggs from those when they become dominant and the biggest, strongest ones in that part of the cycle. So the AMH basically correlates with egg count, which I think you alluded to when you spoke earlier, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, so what it really reveals is the ovarian capacity to ovulate. So it's called our ovarian reserve, basically. What's, how much juice is in the tank for those ovaries to produce eggs? And, and as you correctly said before, it doesn't tell us the quality of those eggs. So it just gives us an idea of capacity. Mm. And I think that's what was really interesting because when, when the doctor was going through it with me, we kind of went through the first part and it was all green and, you know, that was great. But then it showed, the the result showed how, or was this an example of how the eggs actually, I could have had, or I could have, I, I really don't know, lots of shit eggs. And it did, I, can you speak to for us how much, I mean, obviously everyone's different, but as we get older, well, obviously with our biological mm. clock, does the quality of our eggs change? And then also for some people, do we already have, like are some people born with poorer quality eggs than others? Yeah, so there's, there's, I guess there's two questions in that. I'll answer your first one first. So as we get older, obviously our number of eggs decline, uh, but also our egg quality does decline. And it's really interesting. It's not so much affected until we exceed the age of 35. So our eggs are in pretty good quality up until that point. But after the age of 35, they the quality does decline more rapidly. So it's more significant then if you've got a low AMH because actually you're playing with a low egg reserve or low ovarian reserve plus possible questionable quality of eggs as well. So certainly when we talk about things like egg freezing, if you've got a sort of lowish count and you're edging towards or, or lowish, you know, AMH and you're edging towards sort of 35, and you're thinking about egg freezing, it's really the time to do it is before 35. So we really harness the quality component. You asked about, you know, do some people just have crap eggs? Um, well, there's, there's, we don't have a lot of data in this space, but we certainly know that things like smoking, excessive alcohol, illicit drugs, poor lifestyle and diet, all of these things can affect the quality and indeed the number of eggs, right? So um, certainly there are some people who are going to be in that situation where they might have chronic health problems, maybe taking some medications that might affect, mm. uh, you know, egg quality uh, or ovarian function that, that are going to have an impact in that space. 
Oh, it's so interesting. Mm. And and if, because I think the thing with, with my personal journey, I think uh, currently right now, my husband and I don't feel ready to have children. It's funny because I always thought at, I think it's because mum had me at 27. I was like, oh, you know, by the time I'm 27, I feel like an adult and I'll feel like I, I want to have children. But I, I was like, no, not, not ready at that age. Um, and a lot of the reason now is, and this is like my own personal choice, is because of work. Um, and prioritizing work. But I think my biggest worry is that if I prioritize work and then I wait too long and then I've then have a less chance or it takes a long time because of like I've heard so many stories of people that maybe waited until they were 34 because they put their career first. And I think there's so much pressure on women in particular mm. with that. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, we breastfeed and, and all, we don't have to, but all of these things. Um, and then they started trying it like 34 or whatever it may have been and, it, you know, it took five years or maybe they weren't able to get pregnant. So there's, that's kind of where I'm at mentally. Um, and after I did the, the test, it was helpful. But I think the thing I'm thinking through now is, is there anything, is there another test that, you know, you ever recommend your patients to do or that people can get to check the quality of, of the eggs? And then I know I'm, I'm a two-part question. I'm very sorry. I like to put all these things into, into the one question. But then within that as well, what I've heard, and I don't know if this is right, is that it's just a snapshot of that moment. It's not kind of a certainty, whereas with male fertility, it's more certain if, if they get a test. Oh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. So the first thing you asked was about, is there a test for sort of egg quality? Mm. There are some assessments of egg quality, but they're largely done once you've taken the eggs out and looked at them under the microscope. So you're kind of already in that realm of of egg freezing mm-hmm. and, and salvaging eggs. Yeah. So you've gone down that path already. In terms of, you know, testing men, testing women, you know... Um, when when you do a hormone profile, so I think you said that, you know, you'd had your AMH done, but you'd also had some other hormones done as well. Those hormones absolutely often estrogen, progesterone, LH, FSH, these tests we do to assess what's kind of going on in the cycle. And we're looking at the ratio of, of some of those hormones, their levels between each other. And we're also comparing that to reference ranges that we expect at a certain point in your cycle. So essentially, those hormone tests are really only very useful when they're timed at a specific point in your cycle, because then we know what we're going to see. For example, if we ask you to do a day 21 progesterone, that's going to be around the time of ovulation or just after ovulations happen. So we should see a really big peak in your progesterone levels, right? So we know what we're looking for at certain parts of your cycle for the rest of the hormones. So you're right, it is a snapshot. With men and their semen analysis, again, it is a snapshot, but generally semen analysis, if it, if it doesn't look great, you might repeat it again, but it's rarely, I would say, a huge difference unless they've been doing something really silly like I don't know, uh, you know, they've been a truck driver and they've been sitting in a cab that's got a heated engine underneath, you know, and they've been doing that for weeks versus having, I don't know, a career change and and now they're sitting in an office. That might make a big difference um, because the quality of the sperm Mm. will be way better, right? Um, But generally speaking, you don't see that so much in in men. For them, it's as long as the sample is done accurately, which is a task in itself, I have to say, um, but um, as long as the sample's done correctly and analysed in a really prompt time frame, then it's a pretty accurate reading. Mm. Interesting. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think, is there anything else, is there any other tests or anything else that women can look into? Because I think it's one of those things, right, where, again, I've got I've got some friends who are going through this at the moment and they're, you know, not wanting to stress themselves out too much by going and doing every test under the sun. Um, they're not really sure when it when is the point that it is appropriate to go and do that. So is there a point that you would say a lot of these tests become appropriate or that you would recommend them? Yeah, so I think um, that's a really interesting conversation and one that I have with the ladies I see in my clinic quite often. Once a a woman's starting to approach their 30s and and they're on contraception and they're not thinking about children in the very near future, I think the first step is actually assessing your contraceptive. Is this the right one to be on? We know that um, using the pill, the combined oral contraceptive pill, it does suppress ovulation and it can take a while for that to come back after you stop it. So I see lots of ladies who go, yeah, I'm I'm on the pill now, but I'm going to come off it next year and I'm going to try in February. And by, you know, sort of June, I'll be pregnant. And you're like, yeah, okay, that might not happen, Mm. you know. Mm. So I think we've got to have really realistic timeframes in that space. And using different contraceptives like the hormonal IUDs give you all the benefits, but without suppressing ovulation. So that's way more reversible. So I think it's got to start earlier than you think it does around that contraceptive, you know, conversation. I think also you've got to bear in mind when you're family planning or when you're considering conception, you know, how many kids do you actually want? Um, Because I see the scenario quite often that you spoke about earlier, somebody who's, say, 34, and they're like, okay, I'm going to start trying now. And how many children do you want? Well, I might want two or three. Well, the average couple who have no problems at all that we know of um, will take at least six months to fall pregnant. 50% of women will fall pregnant after six months of trying. 90% will fall after a year of trying. So when you look at those stats, most people are going to take a year to conceive. And you then need to factor that in to your plans. Because if you want more than one kid and you're starting when you're 34, actually then you're going to start to tip into when your egg quality isn't so great. And the older you get on that journey the harder it is to fall pregnant, Uh, you know, increased risk of miscarriages, that kind of thing. And that's where kind of egg freezing really offers that insurance policy, you know. Um, And so, you know, I encourage women to be really proactive, at least start having the conversation. Let's talk about the contraception. Let's help you plan. And if it's something like, I'm not seriously going to start trying and I'm not that worried about it, I might just do an AMH. Mm, mm -hmm. If they, you know, they're starting to try or they're, you know, that sort of, you know, between 35 and 40 and they really don't have time to waste, then doing the full range of tests, including an ultrasound scan that's timed at the right part of the cycle so we can actually see that ovulation is happening uh, because that's possible. Um, So looking at that as well uh, allows us to sort of you know, we can make decisions because we've got, we're more educated, right? So if somebody is, let's say, 37 and they've been trying for four months and we know that they've got a slightly low AMH and actually when we did their scan, uh, there weren't that many dominant follicles, we're not going to wait for six months before we refer them to a fertility specialist mm. if that's what they want. We're going to refer sooner rather than later. One, two, three, four. What you touched on there that we'd love to ask you about is egg freezing. Mm. So 
It, it's obviously expensive and I think it's something, the thing that with fertility that Steph and I speak about a lot that's really hard is I know in some, I think in ACT, they um, you get some money back from the state government for egg freezing, but obviously not all over Australia or over the world is that the thing. So it is really hard with fertility because there's there's just this barrier when it comes to costs if if things aren't working. And when it comes to egg freezing, I feel like there's also a lot online that I see. It's kind of almost this fear thing, like if you're 30 and you haven't frozen your eggs, like doom, doom, doom. And I, I find that hard yeah. looking at that because it's like, well, it's so expensive to do it. Like it's such a big decision. And then if you end up, you know, falling pregnant within two years anyway or something and you wanted one or two kids, you can probably do it. You won't need them. When do you recommend for your um, your patients to, to or people to freeze their eggs? And then also for women, because obviously we have the biological clock with which affects like the quality of the eggs, et cetera. But if we freeze them, can you s- reinsert them Excuse my non-education on this. That's why she's here, Laws. That's why she's here. Reinsert them at any age or is did your body still... Is there like still... an expiry date on yeah. these, on these yeah, things? So, um, so with the egg freezing, look, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, how the quality of the eggs mm. uh, declines after the age of 35. And and that's really, it's kind of, it's not a cutoff. It's not a hard cutoff. You know, if you go down the process and they start analyzing the eggs and they look good, they're going to freeze them for you, right? The point is that once that quality starts to decline, it's the eggs are less likely to survive the freezing thawing process. Mm. So the, the integrity, if you think about a normal egg, right? I know it's a terrible analogy, but, you know, the older the egg is, when you crack the egg, the, the white doesn't stick together, does it? You know, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a little bit like that. We're losing the integrity of those eggs as, as we get older. And so if we're going to freeze them and thaw them, we want them to be in the best shape possible. So really, if someone's edging towards that 35, and, you know, specifically, it's around those women who you know, have a low AMH, who don't have a partner, you know, mm. haven't, they're in that situation where they know they want children, but they just, nothing's going to happen in the next year or two that's going to help them move forward in that space. And then this acts as an insurance policy. So the other question about, you know, can you put it in at any time? More or less, yes. I mean, fertility is is a little bit more complex than that. So there are endometrial factors. So the endometrium is the lining of the womb, and that plays a really important part in sustaining a pregnancy as well. So I can't say that, you know, when you're 55, your endometrium is going to be good enough <laughs> to, to receive an embryo or, or an egg. Um, but, you know, there are some other factors in that space. And also just, you know, bearing in mind as we get older, certainly over the age of 40, the risks of any complication in pregnancy and delivery do go up, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different things to balance and, and you know, really, I suppose, weigh up um, before you go down that process. But I think what's lovely about egg freezing is it's giving women options now that they didn't have before, you know. And actually, as a process, yes, it's expensive, but it's a very streamlined process. You're not looking at like the IVF process, which is way more complicated, you know. Um, So it is one of those things that, you know, women can have very straightforward uh, treatment and egg retrieval and those can go in the bank and that's it, you know. Um, So... Yeah, I think, yes, there's complexity to it. It's not as straightforward as it might seem, but, but, but it's, it's also, also a great, great offering. Mm-hmm. 
And, and when it comes to cost as well, you ha- you have to pay. Obviously, you pay for the egg retrieval and then for them to be frozen. But then there's also storage costs, isn't there? Correct. Because they have yeah. to stay in the. And are they does that depend on where you get them frozen, or yeah. is it pretty standardized? Look, I, I don't think the prices vary too wildly, but yes, it does. It does vary a little bit. Okay, so interesting. And then with the eggs as well, if I go today and get my eggs, some of my eggs frozen, do the people who retrieve them check the quality of the eggs before they freeze them, or is that is that kind is that of like you, you just wait? Out when yeah. No, no, no. They do check the quality of the eggs okay. at the time of freezing, so they don't they don't you know take you. Freeze your rubbish ones. Is that <laughs> is that so that I mean potentially if you were to go through I, I don't know if it's called a round of that but like a, a round of egg freezing and then they were to say that the ones that they retrieved were in fact not the best quality. You've obviously got the option at that point to do it again. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, okay. So what they will do is when they do the retrieval, they'll they'll look at the eggs and say, okay, out of the so many eggs that we took out you actually we got this many good ones and and we think you should freeze those and if that number's a little on the low side then you might want to go again right okay interesting I never knew that yeah I didn't know that either and do you have I mean I suppose it again it totally depends on how many good eggs were then frozen so I don't even know if these statistics exist but it's obviously it's still a fact that egg freezing doesn't always work in, right. And uh, there's a lot of different variants, I'm sure, to to why, and we've already spoken through some. But are there any stats as to, like, if you egg freeze before 35 and then you try for a baby between 35 and 40, this is the success rate? Like, So there's definitely statistics that say that eggs frozen before the age of 35 survive better and produce a more positive outcome, you know, in terms of successful pregnancy mm-hmm. than those eggs frozen after 35. Okay. So we know that. But also remember, it's also what you do with those eggs. Yeah. You know, do you just put the egg back? Do you do ICSI? Do you do IVF? You know, mm-hmm. which which fertility treatment are you going to choose that's going to give you the optimal outcome? So ICSI is where they inject the sperm into right. the, the egg and they, you know, basically put it back in that form. Um, or they will wait for fertilization. So they're basically getting an embryo and they transfer the embryo and that's IVF. So IVF results in more successful pregnancies because it's already fertilized, it's already established. Um, whereas ICSI less so. But ICSI is a cheaper process because mm. you're not, you know. So um, yeah, so that's that's what commonly people would do. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for women who haven't got a partner but still want to have children because then they've got the option of sperm donation mm-hmm. and all of that, which they, you know, it's trickier to get when you haven't got the egg freezing uh, component as a backup, you know? I'm just always so blown away when I hear about, you know, the making of a baby, um, be it any way it comes about. It is, it's just a miracle, isn't it? It's just, it's crazy when you think about all the different things mm-hmm. that line up to create a human being. I just, I'm still blown away by it. It, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, when you think about the process itself and how it has to happen and, you know, the sperm reaching the egg is is a miracle in itself, you know. And then on top of that, there's this little group of cells that have to multiply and become a baby and implant properly and Mm -hmm. then grow and develop normally. Um, It really is a miracle and yet, 
you know, pregnancy rates are pretty good still, you know. Um, so, but, you know, we see lots of higher pregnancy rates in, in the younger population, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that really all supports this idea of healthier, stronger, better quality eggs when we're younger. We have a question from Mandy, our producer. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask Dr. Snea because I um, am 33. My husband and I have been together for like a million years. Mm-hmm. And when I was about uh, 28, 29, I remember thinking um, I'd love to know what my fertility is like because, you know, if my like yeah egg quality is low or any of that, um, I'd rather know now because if we're going to have to go down the IVF path and it's going to take a long time, you know, maybe that we'll put kids in our sooner plan rather than when I'm 35 or whatever. But I, I actually went to the doctors. I reckon maybe this was when I was like 30. I went to the doctors and I said, oh, I want to check my fertility. And they said, have you been trying? And I said, no, we're not trying yet. And they said, oh, come back when you're trying. Yeah. And I was like, what? Why, why can't I check my fertility mm. now? I want to know mm. so that in advance I can plan for if things were not great later. I don't want to get to 35 and try or whatever it is and then find out that, you know, it's too late sort of thing. Do you yeah, know why I, that is, that they make you sort of wait to start uh, trying? <laughs> no, is <laughs> the short answer. Um, look... Yeah, there's no real reason for that. And I think it's, I I certainly see ladies in your shoes all the time. And if they want to explore that, like I said at the beginning, you know, my question is, where are you at in this? You know, you Mm. just want to know your fertility, you want a broad idea of your fertility, let's do your AMH, you know. And, And I don't think there's any harm in that. So is yeah. the question, find a good doctor who will actually test 100% it? 100% okay. correct. Because no. <laughs> people, look, friends of mine have said, oh, um, I just lied and said I was trying for a year. Yeah, there shouldn't be any <laughs> need for that really. Um, I think, look, finding finding a doctor, and there's no reason why a GP can't do all these tests for you, but to get the kind of right approach, to get the approach that you know, you're talking about here, you need to really find a, a GP that, likes women's health, they're subspecialized in women's health, or they do a lot of it, you know, because then they're going to be in the right mindset um, to sort of understand where you're coming from. And I just have one more, well, I don't know if you have any more questions here, but just one more question. When it comes to egg freezing, can you also freeze with, in an, freeze an embryo or an egg? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. And so with the embryo, the risk would be well, there's more. Is there more chance with an embryo that then um, the person will be more likely to get pregnant with that freezing process? But then, obviously, with the risk with that is if they're not still with the partner, they haven't got that. Kind yeah, of- you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely, embryo freezing we've been doing for way longer. You know, so we know much, much, much more about this. I mean, we've been freezing eggs as well. Don't get me wrong, but it's. Um, we know where we stand with embryos and embryos do survive that little bit better and there's less chance, right? Because you've already got the embryo. Mm. But you're absolutely right and that's that's the... And this is why I talk a lot about the, the lady who, you know, hasn't got a, a regular partner or it's a new relationship and they're getting to that age. This is That's kind of the time to start thinking about mm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like it is such a... Because it's almost like, well, it is if you're freezing your eggs, it's like you're giving yourself that that extra time, that insurance policy, but then it's a if it is with a specific person in the embryo, and I understand why people do it because there is a higher chance, et cetera, but it is it's, it would be I just can imagine it would be such a hard mm. decision. At the end of the day, all of these things, because I can see I can hear so many different things like Mandy, I think it was so 
amazing and like proactive and obviously it's your body that you want to learn about, why not? And then I can also see the latter, I suppose, from some people's perspective on not wanting to to maybe stress before you you need to. And I think it's, I think at the end of the day, you've just got to do what you want to do. If you want to find out these things and you want to look into it, there are different things that you can do. And if you get pushback from a certain doctor, find another one. (laughs) Absolutely. And look, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the money involved, but, yeah. you know, if if you're a person who doesn't want to have children till later and, you know, you're prepared to go down that fertility pathway if you need to, then, you know, it allows you to know where you stand so you can start saving your dollars towards it, you know. Mm. So I think there's also a financial component as well as a life yeah, and planning component as well. Absolutely, and I think too. It's it, obviously again. It's it's everyone's decision mm, with with absolutely. what they want to do. But I think it is it's empowering. I think we are so lucky to have kind of all of this information yeah. that that we have and all these tests because they've obviously evolved so much. Um, and it is really. I did even though I did. It was a combination more so of my disorganisation but um, of, you know, delaying my, my test. But once I had these results, I felt really empowered with, with the information. So I think that if you are considering it, I, I personally would, re- it, it has helped me feel mm. more empowered with knowing my body better and um, understanding my options because it is something that's important to me. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you You're so welcome. much for joining us and for all of your wisdom. And so sorry insightful. for all the questions. No, so <laughs> that's <insightful>. right. <laughs> Gosh, I learned so much and I can't wait. I can't wait to share this with so many people. So, yes, thank you so much for sharing your time and all your wisdom with us today. Thank you. No problem at all. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If you would like to get involved with the kick pod or kick bump pod, you can by going to our Instagram at kick pod and sending us a voice note or writing in a DNM. And if you would like to join a bit of a virtual mother's group, we like to call it our kick bump Facebook community is for you. There is so much in there, encouragements of finding your journey again after having a baby or questions during pregnancy. It's a virtual mother's group of love and support and you are so welcome. So you can find us there. If you would like to learn more about Kick, you can go to our website, kickapp.com, or you can find us on the Apple Store and Google Play Store where we have a seven-day free trial. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in your ears very soon. Bye.